Father, this morning we give you great thanks that uh, we can gather together as your people uh, in all different places, uh, locally and all around the world. And Father, that we can spend time now sitting under your word, uh, being taught by it, being encouraged and challenged by it. Father, we thank you for the story of the resurrection and the fact that it is the centerpiece to our hope, Lord, that we have a good king who would lay his life down for us, uh, but who would also raise back to life so that he is our risen Lord Jesus. So, Father, encourage us now as we're in the word. May this be a time of great blessing to each of us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, before we crack too far into this passage, I want us to consider a particular phenomenon uh, that, if we're willing to admit, can happen in each and every one of our lives. Uh, And the reason I want us to explore this is because if we're willing to concede to our own vulnerabilities as we look at this passage in John, uh, we will see two things. We will see, we'll be able to sympathize with Mary and where she is at when she comes to the tomb, but we'll also be able to deeper deepen our understanding of the richness and the way in which Jesus reveals himself to her and the compassion that he has for her. So this phenomenon I'm speaking of is our ability as humans to be completely blind to things that are right in front of us, whether it's the influence of our emotions, uh, perhaps our skewed expectations, uh, or perhaps you're just like me and have a general lack of awareness We all have the ability to stand before something that is very obvious and yet be totally blind to what we're looking at. A great example of this came back in the golden age of YouTube, uh, where a video uh, had gone viral demonstrating this very phenomenon. Some of you may recognize the picture as soon as I put it up. Oops, Daisy. There we go. Some of you may recognize this picture, but for those of you who don't recognize it, this video showed eight basketball players lined up, four in white and four in black, and the question came up on the screen, how many passes does the white team make? For the next minute or so, all the players begin to run around, passing a varying array of basketballs to each other, and it's quite impressive the skill that they have as they're passing the balls around. It makes it really hard to track your eyes with the passes between the white team. Then after a minute or so, the answer comes up on the screen and you have the opportunity to see how well you were paying attention. But then just after that, another question pops up. It's a rather weird question. The question says, did you notice the moonwalking bear? It's a rather strange question. It's a video about basketball. But if you go back and watch it a second time, you will notice this guy who pops up in the middle of it. This man in a bear costume moonwalks down to the middle does a little dance amongst all the players, and then Moon walks back out the other side. It's strange, because the first time you watch the video, you were totally unaware of it. But the second time you watch it, it seems so very, very obvious. Our brains have the amazing ability to blind us to what is so very obvious, especially when our expectations or even our emotions are skewed. And so what we see in John 20 then, as we approach these final moments before the revelation of Jesus in his resurrected body, are much the same. For us as the reader, we may look on at these recounts of the empty tomb and think, shouldn't this have been so obvious to Jesus' followers, especially his disciples? Perhaps, in some ways, it should have been. But as we see them in their raw moments before Jesus reveals himself, here, particularly in this passage with Mary, we will see how the rawness of pain left them so very blind to what was right there in front of them. 
And as we focus in on Mary this morning, we will see these moments of varying emotions from the moment that she approaches the tomb to the moment that Jesus sends her back away from it. The first of these moments for Mary is a moment of despair. Read along with me again in verses 1 and 2. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. The opening of this passage in John 20 is full of emotion. For those who maybe have dived deep into John, you'd know that he loves symbolism. And so when he opens by saying that it was dark when Mary approached the tomb, he isn't purely talking about the time of day that she approached. From the culmination of the Gospels, we know that darkness covered the earth when the Lord gave up his life on the cross. The Lord had been killed and it was dark. And so, as Mary approaches the tomb on the first day of the week, it is still dark, for her Lord is still dead. Mary then arrives at the tomb, and she finds something that she considers truly horrifying. It's open, and it's empty. It would appear that somebody has stolen Jesus' body. And what we might consider to be strange, though, at this point, is that not even for a second does Mary consider that perhaps Jesus might have risen to life. She is at the tomb three days after his crucifixion, the day that he said he would be risen, and yet it doesn't even occur to her that that's what's going on. She stands before a tomb where the impossible has occurred. The heavy stone has been rolled away without anybody's detection, and the body of a dead man is gone. And it might leave you asking the question, Mary, does this not seem so obvious that Jesus has done exactly what he said he would do, just like he always did. And yet Mary's despair blinds her sight. We may be tempted as the readers to see Mary as foolish and blind in this moment, having such little faith. Perhaps in some way that's true, but I think we all need to humble ourselves when we read these words, knowing that I and all of us are guilty of this very same kind of blind hopelessness. How often in the midst of sadness, of hurt and despair or trials do we lose sight of the promises of God? And how often do we lose sight of his perfect faithfulness to us as his people? Have we not all witnessed the goodness and mercy of God as we've watched brothers and sisters go through seasons of trials and hurt? We encourage them by reminding them that our God is good and mighty and that he will carry them through. And then we rejoice with them when we see the fulfillment of God's goodness to them. But then it's our turn. We face our moments of suffering and we cry out to God, Where are you, God? Do you even hear my cries in this moment, God? The point isn't to say that these kind of moments of heartbreak where we cry out to God and suffering are bad or the wrong thing to do. It's rather just to say that in some way each of us can level ourselves with Mary in her moment of grief here. We all get where Mary's at. Her Lord has died on the cross and now his body has been taken away. 
Might we each forgive her for not grasping the enormity of what is happening in this moment? But what is so glorious about our God is that even when we are not faithful, he remains faithful to us. We all lose faith and become forgetful like Mary from time to time. Yet the resurrection reminds us that in our deepest moments of grief and confusion, we still have an almighty God who is all good and all powerful, who cares tenderly for his people and whose good and perfect will will not be stopped by anything, even death. And so at this point, Mary runs back to inform some of the other disciples of what she has, uh, what she has witnessed. She speaks to Peter and John, the one who Jesus loved. And what follows is seemingly an unnecessary amount of detail as to who the faster runner is. No commentator has much to say about exactly why John felt the need to include this detail. But we are simply reminded of the weight of the situation. These two grown men without any shame, take off as quickly as they can to see what Mary has claimed. We then see that the first moments as John and Peter discover for themselves what is true. As John peers into the tomb, he doesn't see a mess in the tomb as though someone has scrambled to steal a body. As he looks in, he sees the strips of linen and cloth folded neatly, almost as though the one who was wrapped in them had done it himself. For John, it says that when he saw this, he believed. Though the language there might be slightly ambiguous, depending on your translation, it simply says he saw, he believed. What is clear is that when John saw the empty tomb, he had become convinced that the Lord Jesus had resurrected. And what's intriguing here is that John is the very first to see and believe. No one had yet been face to face with Jesus, But what John saw at the tomb was enough of a witness that he could believe. And then in verse 9, John gives a little bit of honest retrospect detail where he admits that though they believed, they did not fully understand yet that this is what Scripture had promised. John believes that Jesus is resurrected, though he doesn't yet fully understand that Jesus is the promised resurrected Saviour that all all of Scripture had pointed towards. And so what we see from this point on are these moments when the good news is finally pieced together by these followers of Jesus. Just imagine the wonder and amazement for a second as they began to put together the details. Here at the tomb, John would have been amazed but confused. This man who they had followed and loved, who had demonstrated that he was powerful and godly in nature who was killed in an unjust way right before their very eyes, that man, it would seem that he has risen back to life. And I just imagine that John's heart would be racing with confusion but excitement. What does this mean? And yet any excitement at this moment is but a snippet of just how wondrous this resurrection will be to them when they realise that Jesus was the promised Messiah from Scripture though they had not yet connected the dots on this miraculous event. What was true is that Jesus was the risen king that was promised and prophesied all throughout Scripture. And so these two men then, having seen what they saw, make their way back to where they were staying. 
Mary, however, she stays at the tomb at this point. And it says that she stood outside the tomb and wept. I don't know if you've slowed down enough to read those words and to grieve for Mary at this moment. Does your heart break for her? Mary is grieved to her very core. If everything that you and I know is about to happen with the resurrection, if that was the top of a glorious mountain, then where we find Mary at this point, standing outside the tomb weeping, is the deepest, darkest valley. She has lost her Lord, and when she came to his tomb to honor him, as a good and faithful Jew would always do, she finds that his body has been taken. And so might we each be gentle with her tears and her little faith in this moment, for it would seem that Mary has lost so very, very much. John's recount at this point shifts to a moment of hope for Mary. Not necessarily a moment of hope for a resurrected saviour, but rather it's a a moment of hope for Mary where maybe she can right some of the wrongs that she has witnessed that day. All Mary longs for now is that Jesus' body would be returned so that she could go back to honouring him as she wanted. Verse 11 and 12 tell us that she peers back into the tomb and she sees two angels. To go back to our first point for a second, it's a powerful reminder of, of just the depth of Mary's grief at this point. She sees these two people described as angels, and yet not for a second does she question what is going on. Simply stricken with grief, she shares with them the painful reality that somebody has taken her Jesus and she so desperately wants him back. Perhaps in these two men, Mary might find hope of finding the body once again. From this point on, we hear nothing else from the two angels, for Mary suddenly becomes aware that somebody else is standing in her presence. And she turns to see a man that she does not recognize. As the readers, we're told it's Jesus, but it's clear that whether it's her grief clouding her eyes or simply God's divine sovereignty that doesn't allow her to recognize him, she doesn't get that this is actually Jesus. Mary's heart is set on finding Jesus' body and he is about to reveal it to her. Thinking he's a gardener, Mary pleads with this man that, she might, that he might simply just inform her where the body is. At this point, Mary goes, I'm happy to deal with anything that has been done wrong. I don't need you to get the body, just tell me where it is and I will fix this mess. Leon Morris makes the observation at this point that Mary was looking for a corpse, whereas she should have been seeking a person. Hear that again. Mary was looking for a corpse, whereas she should have been seeking a person. Mary has forgotten the promises of God, and so her only hope now is to find the body of the one whom she loves so that she would go back to honouring him with a proper burial. Jesus responds to Mary in this moment, and she still doesn't get who he is, but he asks her a couple of questions. And on on the service level, these questions may seem simplistic and insignificant, and yet these questions get to the very heart of every person who forgets the promises of God, like Mary, 
And it gives not just Mary, but every one of us as a reader an opportunity to respond to him in faith. Jesus' first question is, why are you crying? More than just the question of compassion, Jesus is gently challenging the faith of Mary as he so often did with all of his disciples. If you remember in Matthew 8, when their disciples are terrified on the boat in a storm, they ask Jesus to do something about it, and he asks them, why are you so afraid? These why questions that Jesus asks his followers from time to time challenge the disbelief of those who know God's goodness and power and yet have momentarily forgotten it. Jesus asked Mary, why are you crying, Mary? Have you forgotten that the Lord said, uh, have you forgotten what the Lord said he would do? Jesus then asks, who are you looking for? His next question gives Mary the opportunity to reflect not just on the fact that she seeks a dead body, but exactly who the man is that she is looking for. Who is it that you search for? Who is this man Jesus and why is he so significant to you? In a moment of forgetfulness, Jesus gives her the opportunity to consider why she has lost faith and exactly who she puts her trust and hope in at this point. And Jesus gives you and I the same opportunity in these questions, just to sit and rest in the comfort of his words. Why are you crying? Why are you afraid? Not just what draws you, your faith away from him, but why does it? Have you forgotten the promises of Jesus? And who is it that you're looking for? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord, the one who gives you greater hope and rest and assurance than anything else in this life? Who is Jesus to you? These questions aren't just important in our moments of deep grief and pain. They're questions that ought to occupy our thoughts day by day. As we return to work tomorrow, anxious about deadlines and the expectations set for us, who is Jesus to you in those moments? As you young people return to school or uni in the coming weeks, why are you afraid? Do you remember that the Lord is faithful and mighty and he promises that he will go before you? Or mums, as you faithfully raise kids at home, taking care of what may feel like mundane and unnoticed tasks, who is Jesus to you in those moments? Or perhaps you are approaching retirement or you've reached retirement and life looks radically different. Who is Jesus to you in those moments? He is your risen king. He sees you in those moments, even when no one else does. He laid his life down for you, and he was raised to new life so that he might be your greatest sufficiency and your greatest joy in all those seasons. In all these moments, just as Mary was about to find out, we have nothing to worry about because Jesus is the risen king and he is our greatest hope above all else. We then see in verse 16, the moment in which Mary comes to the realization of who she is standing with. Though speaking with this gardener, 
In verse 16, it would seem that Mary has turned away from him, perhaps to peer back into the tomb in disbelief one more time. And it's at this moment that Jesus speaks but a single word. Mary, he says. Mary turns at once, realizing the true identity of the man she is speaking with. One commentator describes this moment as such. He says, the shepherd calls his sheep and his sheep recognize his voice. Jesus calls Mary by name, and in that very moment, her eyes are open and she sees what is true. She cries out, teacher. This moment of grief, searching for the lost body of Jesus, immediately turns to a moment of rejoicing as Jesus stands before her in resurrected glory. Her Lord has risen. What a glorious moment that must have been for Mary. She hasn't yet found the dead body she looks for, but instead Jesus comes to her in his resurrected body. And it may sound like a broken record, friends, but isn't it glorious that the Lord is resurrected and alive? Jesus has conquered death, and here he is standing before Mary. I hope, Christian, that that fills you with joy, because we don't worship a dead king, but one who is alive and is in glory and majesty. But the question must be asked to everyone who reads these words. Have you responded to Jesus' call? We don't get to experience this exactly like Mary, standing face to face with Jesus in quite the same way. But each of us have the inspired word of God. As we read these words, it isn't just that Jesus is calling Mary's name, but he's calling your name and my name. Will you, like Mary, hear the voice of the shepherd, turn his way and embrace him as your resurrected Lord and Saviour? As we see Mary's reaction to discovering Jesus, we are reminded that there is truly no greater joy in this world than hearing the voice of our shepherd and turning to him. In that moment, all the hurt and grief that had buried Mary was suddenly taken away and met with joy and satisfaction because her Lord was alive and well, and he called her name. May we each hear his voice and embrace his call. And as Mary embraces him, Jesus responds then by saying, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. We might be tempted in this moment to think that Jesus is being a little bit cold. I mean, after all, the Lord has risen. You can understand why Mary would embrace him. And yet what Jesus is actually doing here is simply pointing to something greater that is is still to come. If you think back to Jesus' words in the upper room for a moment, his disciples were so discouraged because Jesus told them that he had to go away. See, these followers of Jesus so desperately wanted things to stay the same for Jesus to simply continue to walk alongside them. And yet Jesus says, it is good for me to go, for I will send the Spirit. So as Mary embraces Jesus in this moment, it would seem to her that things have returned to the way they once were. Jesus was back, he was no longer dead, and so he could be in their midst once again things would return to just how they were. 
But Jesus' words here serve as a reminder that whilst he has died and resurrected, he is still to go away from them so that he might send the Spirit, which would be even greater for each of them. Jesus didn't want Mary to simply cling to his physical body in this point. Rather, he wanted her to know that his work on the cross had been complete and that the day when he would ascend to the Father was still approaching. This was a time in which they would go from walking alongside Jesus, hearing his promises of what he would do on the cross, to now going out and proclaiming that the work had been done and the sin of mankind had been paid for with his blood. In Hereford Street, this is the part of history that you and I get to live in. We live on this glorious side of the resurrection. Jesus has called our name. He is our resurrected King. And just like he did with his first disciples, he has commissioned each of us to go out and make his glorious name known. There is a whole world out there that does not know the joy that Mary discovered that morning. It's a joy that us as believers know, but so many around us do not know it yet. We can take that gift and we can sit quietly with it and keep it to ourselves. Or we can do as Jesus commanded Mary in verse 17 and go and tell of the resurrection. Jesus sent Mary to tell his brothers. You and I have been given the great commission to go and tell the world. Praise the Lord, our Saviour is risen. What's incredible when we go back to that basketball video from the start is that once the creator points out to you the moonwalking bear, it becomes so very obvious and it changes the way you watch the video every time from this point on. It's no longer a basketball video, it's a funny dancing bear video. And we can't simply go back to being ignorant to what is so very clearly in front of us. No matter how hard you try to ignore the bear, it's just there and it's all you can see. Whether you call Jesus your Lord and Saviour here today or not, we can all agree on a couple of things. The first of which is that it's very obvious that our world is broken and filled with pain, with suffering and sorrow, with hurt and evil, and so many other things that feel so unnatural to every human heart. It's also very obvious that as mankind, we do not have the ability to fix this for ourselves. We do good and positive things from time to time as mankind. We make positive changes. But it seems that nothing can cure the very thing that our world is infected with. The evil and the suffering and the pain just seem to go on again and again. We know that the Bible calls this infection sin. And we know that it has pervaded and seeped into every corner of the world we live in. And it has seeped into every corner of each of our hearts. And so it's obvious then, since we all have the sin infection and we can't cure it for ourselves, we need someone to intervene for us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then rejoice, for your Saviour is alive and well. We do not worship one who is simply a good example or a good teacher or taught us how to fix ourselves. 
and we do not worship one who died and stayed dead. Our Lord is alive and well, and when we could not conquer our own sin and shame, he took it to the cross, dying the death of an innocent man, and when three days had passed, just as he said he would, he raised to new life, because not even death could keep our king down. And so we rejoice, for our king is alive and well. And if you don't call Jesus your Lord and Savior here today, then might you be encouraged by the words of John to look at the witness of the empty tomb and to see that the Lord Jesus is standing there with open arms, welcoming you into new and eternal life. It may be so obvious that our world is broken and in need of salvation from its sin, but when we look at the empty tomb, it becomes so obvious that Jesus is both a good and gracious Savior, but also a powerful and mighty King. Oh, how beautiful is our Lord that he would die for us. In our moment of desperation, he humbled himself as a baby, lived the perfect life that we couldn't, died the death that was rightfully ours, and conquered that very death so that he may be our living king from now into eternity. He did it all so that all the good and perfect promises of God to redeem his people would be fulfilled. What a wonderful truth this is that none of us can ignore. Let's pray. Oh, how beautiful is our Lord that he would die for us. Lord Jesus, as we look at the empty tomb, we first acknowledge that it was our sin that put you in the tomb in the first place. You are our glorious and humble Savior, the one who paid our ransom with your blood. But Jesus, at the empty tomb, we see that our humble Savior is also our mighty King, the one who conquered death and is alive and well. Lord, thank you that your resurrection offers us an opportunity to be welcomed into new, eternal, resurrected life. Thank you, Jesus, that just like Mary, you embrace us in our moments of unfaithfulness, for you always remain faithful, even when we aren't. May we as your people go out from this place now and tell of this good news. Hallelujah. Our Lord is risen. Amen.